Hello, everyone. Welcome back to, oh wait, sorry, I forgot. We have a certain, um, we're calling, oh, the future of veterinary medicine. That's what we're calling it, not Webinar Wednesdays, okay. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the future of veterinary medicine. I'm your host, David Hall, one of the co-founders of Genius Vets, and I'm so thrilled today to be bringing you um, just one of the finest doctors in veterinary medicine, Dr. Michelle Drake, joining the webinar here today. Dr. Michelle Drake is a leading progressive voice in the veterinary industry and the owner of a top performing veterinary practice in Encinitas, California. The Drake Center for Veterinary Care is a seven doctor, 40 employee practice that consistently outperforms competitors and industry averages because of Dr. Drake's passion for embracing change and implementing new technologies. From the latest, latest digital marketing strategies and social media platforms to automated scheduling systems, She's served on committees and advisory boards for the University of California, AHA, Novartis, and others. Dr. Drake completed her DVM at the University of Missouri and founded the Drake Center for Veterinary Care in 1992. She also serves as the Chief Veterinary Officer here at Genius Vets. We're the highest performing digital marketing company in the veterinary industry. And Michelle, as always, thanks so much for taking a little time out of your incredibly, I do know how busy you are, super busy. Thanks for taking some time to join us. Great to be here. Awesome. So uh, this has been a, a great, you know, a, a new season that we've been doing here uh, with uh, the, the future of veterinary medicine here, our webinar Wednesday series. Um, and one of the things, Michelle, that I'm asking every one of our guests to kind of start off is, you know, what are you looking forward to most once COVID is, you know, completely over, we can all kind of just go back to business as usual. What are you missing? Well, um, so I got my first vaccine last week and I'm super excited about that. So that is like a huge step with like preparing to launch out of COVID. And I'm very excited about that. There's a couple of things I would say for one, as a veterinarian, I am truly like anxious to get people back in the building. I know we all kind of joke about how there's been great to not have people in there, but come on, we, we really do need to bond with the humans also. Um, so that, that we can build a relationship with them. And I, we've really missed that on that. We've seen so many new clients um, with COVID and I'm looking forward to actually meeting them in person. So that's for one, I'm looking forward as a personally of having some parties and going to some parties. And, uh, and I'm also <laughs> really looking forward to traveling again um, for fun and for business too. Oh yeah. But I would say that, but I'm actually looking forward to <laughs> traveling for business even. I know, right? You and I had, have done a lot of traveling over the past several years with just a big gap now for the past year. Yeah. Um, but normally we do quite a lot. I, I hear you. I'm missing getting together with friends, hugging people, seeing live music, going out and doing some fun things, mixing yeah. it up. Yeah. For really sure. Nice. Well, we're, hopefully we're getting there. Did I see you got the, uh, that you got the, the uh, vaccination already? I'm, I think I'm yeah. way down the list. Yeah, you're probably like, the very end, but yeah, you're, um, you're an essential worker. I'm just, you know, yeah, so different here, so. states have put veterinarians, I think probably more than half have put veterinarians on that essential list. We were kind of like right below the um, human medical doctors. And some of my doctors I've been talking about even volunteering for giving vaccines or there's like a commission to help out. So we, we're, we're pretty certain we could vaccinate humans also. Um, but just as a practice, we're just so excited to just relieve some of the tension of everybody worrying quite as much. We'll still be wearing masks for right now, but uh, it does definitely like increase your like sense that you're not going to pick up COVID right now. So, yeah, you know, that's one of the things I'm really looking forward to. People aren't wearing masks anymore. Oh, yeah, no. I mean, I think there's still there's like as a society, we're probably just going to have some people that keep wearing masks now. I mean, you know, yeah, people pick up whatever so. for a while, but in general, yeah. a lot of people I think will stop and that'll be nice. Yeah, you can just communicate so better when you're when you can see someone's face. Let's let's be honest. I mean, so much just, better. Yeah. I like when people smile, seeing what they're really. You know, all I can see is you're squinting at me. I don't know what's going on under the mask. <laughs> yeah, I I hate uh, forgetting my mask in the car until I'm almost in the store and having to turn around. I keep doing oh, yeah. it. It's annoying for sure. Throughout the past year, with all this craziness, before we move on and talk about vet care, with all the craziness from COVID, all the you know political tensions and stresses and all of that, what have you done to protect your mental health? Yeah, so probably about 10 years ago or so, I started um, working on how to live in the present. And when you live in the present, you really suffer so much less anxiety because you're not thinking about the past or more importantly, thinking about the future because you don't really own those. You only own the minute that you're in. 
And so that's a constant practice for me. And it truly does when you start to venture into this place, sounds a little new agey. I live in California, so maybe that's part of it. But honestly, once you start learning to be more present person, like so much anxiety goes away. Um, and then obviously I'm, I'm a big mountain biker. I mountain bike almost every day, even in the bad weather, I was still out in it this weekend. I'm lucky to live in California, but uh, I'm on my bike pretty much every day, like ripping up some cardio about 45 minutes to an hour every single day. Just that really helps to even out all the crazies. And, um, and that kind of thing just really keeps my energy level up. I have a lot of energy um, and those things just really contribute to that. Yeah, that's, that's outstanding that you get to get out, get on your bike every day. Such a release. So good. Um, awesome. Well, Michelle, let, let's, let's transition. Let's talk a little bit about more kind of the meat of what the interview here. Um, and your opinion, we've talked, we've had conversations uh, on this topic so many times, um, but, and, and you just have really insightful uh, opinions um, and a lot of, I know, strong feelings in this, on this topic, uh, both, you know, because for your own practice, as well as, you know, your care and concern for your colleagues and your profession. So what I'd like to talk about, we're going to jump into trends in the industry. And one of the more concerning trends that, you know, we certainly watch here at Genius Vets and, and talk about a lot is the trend of consolidation. The trend for practice owners to be selling to, you know, larger corporate groups, um, kind of getting swallowed up into that and, and what that means for the future of independent veterinary medicine. So um, can you, you know, there, there are some very specific things, but overall, I mean, what do you think is, is driving consolidation and what do you think the future really looks like? Well, I think what's driving it is obviously there's money to be made in veterinary medicine. Um, you know, I've heard many people say we never like, you know, make millions of dollars, but we never bought a business either. So we're, we're pretty, um, and we're obviously very recession proof profession. So, um, these consolidators have realized that by, you know, capitalizing on buying a bunch of practices and rolling them up that they are able to cash out and do very well. I think some of the things that are driving them is that the biggest practices in our profession are, are mostly people that are really like my age group, you know, late forties and fifties. Um, and so they're thinking about retiring somewhat, maybe they're getting a little bit tired and these consolidators are flashing very large numbers of, of dollars in front of us. And, can see where it's tempting, especially I've heard some people say after this COVID, I'm totally like selling out or they're even selling out during. Um, and I respect that. I've had many good friends who have taken this route and I'm respectful of their decision also. But I think um, there are many alternatives that people have not thought through. And I think our professional leaders um, groups have not done a great job preparing uh, practices. You know, individual practices, we're all a little island on our own, but together we're so much stronger. And I do think um, it's imperative for AHA and AVMA, which is the only two organizations I can truly think of, and, and then our state organizations too, um, but especially AVMA and AHA, to really think about what are the strategies we need to encourage these larger practices and very strong practices remaining independent to like continually look for that because while consolidators offer a value to those that want to sell, um, I think in the big long run, having all veterinary medicine owned by corporate groups is not good for veterinary medicine. I think to have all our, you know, uh, all our whatever apples in one bucket is just not a good way to go. It's going to decrease, I think, um, well, just in my area. So in my area, there's probably three or four large practices that have all been bought up by corporate. So I have like four practices near me during COVID, we saw so many of their clients begging to get into my practice because these guys are just like, eh, we're full, sorry. You know, it's just, there's just no motivation once they become corporate to push themselves to like, you know, really help people out. So that's a kind of a broad generalization. I'm sure it's not a cross for everybody, but for the most part, I, I think there's not great leadership in all practices to begin with, but once they sell out, um, who Who's minding that store, making sure these people are well taken care of? I just think it's not there. So I think it's going to be um, not so helpful for, for our clients. And I just think our profession in general, then who are they buying from? And all the consolidation that's going on in the pharmaceutical industry, like who is watching out for the independent veterinarian? Really, no one is. I mean, honestly, I feel as an independent veterinarian, there is no one watching out for me. I have to remain strong and independent on my own. And David, I've heard you say so many times, the David Goliath versus Goliath scenario mm -hmm. i truly think that independent veterinarians are much stronger we're much better capable of managing our practices and making them um you know great places to work and also economically very sustainable places to to own 
um, better than anybody else can do that. But we do need sort of like backup. You know, we need help. We need um, people that are watching out for us. So kind of a long answer to your question there, but um, I think it's an important topic that our leadership in our industry needs to pay, to pay attention to. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's, so, I, I mean, I'm hearing you talk about, you know, the quality of medicine as being, you know, adversely affected, uh, you know, um, which ultimately is worse for, for the clients and quality of pet care in the country, but also just the entire industry of professionals. I mean, if you look at everybody who's employed in the veterinary industry, the majority are, are these other, you know, uh, uh, people, are, are techs and the receptionists and the managers and all of and the kennel people and everybody else who's in that practice, as well as, you know, vendors and all that stuff that really that are depending on on not only the health of the business and, and that it being strong business, um, but just on, like on the culture of the practice of having a leader who's in there, who cares, who's, who's really caring about the bottom line and caring about the people in there really pushing forward. Not that not that just because somebody works for corporate means they don't care, but it's a different thing when you have an owner who's like, you know, lifeblood and everything they've built is on the line and they're in there each day kind of, you know, paying attention and calling that that, that good culture. It's such I have kept thing. my employees an extremely long time. I have so many long-term employees. And so without a doubt, that would play a role in my decision to sell to corporate that I would be thinking about their long-term, their long-term play also and how that would affect them. So I would imagine that everybody in that situation is thinking that also. And I've just heard from so many groups that tell me that they say things are not going to change and they do change. So I think right. we have to know that. And also, I think it was something I got from John Tate, who is like one of my one of my favorite people to lean into for good right, information. Yeah, oh, yes. said that like 60 to 70 percent of the people after they sell wish they hadn't. So that's kind of something to pay attention to. I mean, when someone like that tells me something that, like that, I mean, I would think about it and I hope others do as well. Um, realize that there are different ways to go about this. Um, as John mentions, it's the accumulation of long-term wealth and not just this one check that someone's going to give you that can fuel a really nice gradual retirement for owners that have big practices. Um, so I just think, you know, Talk to John or other people um, that can help you figure out ways of structuring it so you can slowly, you know, mentor your new your doctors that are younger doctors into leadership roles and maybe find different ways of selling your practice to them or whatever um, in ways that are just better for the practice. So, so what do you really think would cause more practice owners? Like, what are what are the the levers, the mechanisms that you think would cause more practice owners to want to maintain ownership? Yeah. So I think just knowing that there are ways that you could start to step back and, um, and, you know, mentor people to like, what are the specific roles? Like understanding what are the things that need to happen in your practice and learning how to mentor different people in the practice to assume those roles so that you can still maintain ownership. Because if, as long as you own it, you're going to want to like have tabs on what's going on, but allow you to start stepping back and maybe even grooming some of these people to actually own part of the practice too, or, or all of it eventually. So um, anyway, I think that's, something that would help these people, but just having tools and having different ways besides somebody just writing you a big check um, and leaving everybody kind of out in the cold, including yourself, your team, and probably your long-term, your long-term wealth, I think that would be affected by just taking the check and walking away. Yeah. So to me, it sounds, it really does sound like you're saying uh, knowledge of these alternatives really just comes to the exit. I mean, in the end, nobody wants to work forever. That's not the, that's certainly not right. the point. There has to be a transition strategy somewhere, but understanding what the different options are instead of thinking this is the only way out. You seem to think yeah. that would be, that'd be, I think, you know, I, I'm not a cynic, but I've uh, been in veterinary medicine a long time, owned my own practice. I've owned three practices uh, total and I'm getting ready to build a little extra hospital right now too. Um, I got to say that I feel like that industry it's always, you know, they're there to make money and I get it, but I feel like the really paying attention to independent veterinarians and truly trying to help us is not present in any part of industry. I don't think any of these big consolidating groups of pharmaceutical companies are looking out for veterinarians at all. I think they all know that they can make more money from us and take more from us. Um, I think looking at these, some of these internet pharmacy groups this is not to our benefit at all. I don't think there is a good alternative for us at this time. Um, so I just think just being aware, is, I, I know the world's going to go the way the world's going to go, but I think we should at least be aware. And I think also 
pharmaceutical groups and industry needs to be aware that, you know, a lot of us are watching you guys and we know we have so little power because we're just one individual person, but you know, if, if, if AVMA and AHA could help us, you know, be stronger as a group, I think that would allow us much more uh, room. But I, I, I feel like everybody's a little bit too much into industry's pockets, honestly, in one way or another, and they're not looking out for us at yeah. all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in it, with every company in the quest for growth, what it, what it seems to me in the industry, you know, everyone's looking for let's, let's get this uh, understanding of of where are their market opportunities, right? Common business uh, search, where's a market opportunity that's perhaps underserved? And let's address that because that's an opportunity to expand. And then once they're wedged in that little, little kind of maybe corner, then it's how do we grow from here? Because it's always a question, how are we growing? You know, mm -hmm. so um, yeah, a lot of really tough forces when you start talking about those larger companies looking to take market share. And right. but, but nonetheless, I mean, the way I look at everything is there's only... I can only control what I can control. I can't control what everyone else does. So within my veterinary hospital, I can control how I do business. I control my culture in my hospital. I can control my profitability for the most part. There's certain things you can't control your rent. I mean, but you can control pretty much every other aspect of your business and who you're going to do business with. You can control those things too. Um, there are, there are a few organizations out there that I think that I, I think like TVC is one that I feel like has really, I mean, it's membership owned and they are truly looking out for their members. So that's one I can think of right off the hand. I think AHA has a lot of ability to be a strong player. Um, and I've just seen some question marks in my head the last few years, but I still think there's lots of opportunity and I'm hopeful for that. They will continue to be a strong uh, leader for us and obviously the AVMA too. I would like to look to them um, for, for more progressive thought in this area. Yeah. You know, one of the things going back to that question about how, how to get more veterinary practices, you know, um, wanting to maintain or practice owners wanting to maintain that ownership. One of the, the things is, you know, working on the veterinary business, the business side of a veterinary hospital and, and making that hospital a more valuable asset or just, you know, causing it to uh, have more revenue, follow the bottom line, have, you know, have, have better margins, just be, you know, operated in a more, uh, in a way that it's more enjoyable to run and those sort of things. Still, they're not going to want to hang on to it forever, but certainly that could make someone want to hang on to it longer, you know, or, or remain um, part of it for a much longer time, even if they're stepping away in some way. So this would lead me to ask you, somebody who is probably the most qualified person in the country, I believe, to be answering these types of questions is, how, how do you build and really maximize the value of your practice? Yeah, so uh, when I first bought my very first practice, I was 27, and I had a mentor, Terry Roberts. He was a veterinarian, he's retired, and a really good man, and still to this day, my good friend. Um, and he told me to always run my practice as if I would have to sell it in three months. And so that means your numbers have to be good all the time. So I have kept my payroll and my drugs and supplies at a number that I think is where they should be every month, and maybe they fluctuate 1% or 2 on occasion. But those two numbers are extremely important numbers to maintain a profitability. Um, you know, there's certain things like your rent can't be higher than, you know, whatever percent you want to pick, eight, nine, 10. Um, you know, I've been fortunate in that I bought my building, you know, a long time ago in 1998. And I've built a practice tremendously since then. So, um, I mean, you know, those are things that I've been fortunate to do, but I mean, I grew the, the, the business myself, you know, nobody grew it for me. And that's just been, you know, something I've really always focused on. Culture in my hospital is huge. My very first three months of practice, I fired the only RVT I had because she was not nice to my other staff members. I called her Eddie Haskell and the other employees, you know, that's the first three months they had with me. The one came up to me and said, ding dong, the witch is dead. And they all knew like there was a new sheriff in town and I wasn't going to tolerate people who are not nice and not working together as a team. That's the culture that I had. I started having staff meetings when I was 27 with my staff at my house, having pizza on a Friday night once a month and determining who is it we want to be and what are the things, what are our goals so that my staff always knew who we were and where we were headed all the time. And I still like all through COVID, I mean, I've been zooming like crazy when all the different departments in my hospital 
we've hired eight new employees and, and we just hired a second new doctor. So um, during COVID, so we're up to actually total of nine, if you include me in the doctor numbers. Um, and, you know, these are things that we do have control over. We have control over the culture in our hospital. And I just, I'm online looking at some of these Facebook groups of veterinarians, and I just see them just telling these horrible stories. And I'm thinking, the answer is so clear. If you just wrote four paragraphs on Facebook about a certain employee, what do you think the answer is? Fire them now. You know, it's just, why would you let your other employees be having to deal with this horrible person like every day? It just totally drags down your culture and it makes it, you know, just hypocrisy. So those are the things that I've always done. I make the, the hard, rough choices. They're not really hard choices when you think about what they're doing to the rest of the team, what they're doing to your culture or hospital. So I find those choices really easy. So I, I yeah, would say that to I think there's a big difference between make, knowing to make the choice and what's the right choice and then just doing it. And, and certainly I have found in this industry, there is a lot of conflict avoidance. You know, oh, I don't yes. do the hard thing, but knowing what it is, so you just got to do it. You know. Yeah, it's easy, really. I mean, when you just know what it is you're trying to be and this doesn't fit in that, then you know what your answer is. And then if you just keep sticking with that, then the whole staff knows who you are, who we are as a team, and they'll help you decide who needs to go. So, yeah. you super know, important. one thing, and obviously we've done this uh, a lot, um, We've this has probably been a significant portion of our conversations uh, since we've known each other. Um, is talking about this, the stuff that you've leaned in for a very long time, well, long before Genius Vets in marketing your practice and what that really means to you. Because I've found that overall, even when we, when, you know, when I first met you, you had a very different perspective on what marketing was and what it means to a practice compared to many of the practice owners that I've had the, you know, the opportunity to speak to over the past, you know, five and a half years um, that have been in this industry. So can you shed a little bit of light? I mean, how do you see mark, the role of marketing in your veterinary practice? Yeah, so I've always just thought of marketing as just letting people know who we are and what we do in our hospital. That's all. So first of all, you have to know who you are and you have to be true to that and um, and know who, what your mission statement is very clearly. And everyone on the staff should be able to almost spot it verbatim. Um, know who you are, what you're about, what you do in your hospital, and then simply telling that to people. So way back when, like when I was in, you know, infantile veterinary ownership and there was no cell phone or internet, that's how old I am. Um, we used brochures and it was mostly word of mouth. I mean, I had, I had no visibility where I was my first little tiny practice and it was just really good service and good, you know, good care for my staff um, and um, little brochures and the yellow pages. And that's changed. And so it's always paying attention to what is it, your, who is your customer? What are the things that they need from you? How do they get their information? And how can you best be the one that they come to for information and care? And, and just that has changed tremendously over the years, right? Like so much. So I mean, like this thing changed everything so much, but but even now it changes all the time. And so I have to rely on really intelligent people like David to tell us what are the, what are the things now that are the tools we need to use and in order to get our information out to our clients and our prospective clients. So. Yeah. I mean, you really hit it on the head. It's, it's, it's knowing who you are and just using whatever the modern communication channels are. And those change all the time. We have social networks that are popping up and changing and stuff. And, you know, but just always, always understanding how are people communicating, where are they spending their time, where are they looking for the for information, and then and making sure that you're you're represented there and you're represented as the as what you really are for your expertise, for the way you go about your business, you know, and that your people, your tribe of of, of pet owners that are attracted to your style and your expertise, they're gonna be they're gonna gravitate towards you. And, right. And so, I mean, I think there's so many misconceptions about marketing um, that veterinarians have. They, I think when they think of marketing, all they think of is having a pretty website and putting some things on Facebook. Now that's, I think that's their understanding. And that's such a small part of it. I mean, obviously you have to have a very vigorous website, meaning it doesn't just look pretty. It's able to, um, you know, What's what's the word I'm looking for, David? <laughs> show up in, in Google search results, like when it's gonna show up. It's, it's an active it's an active platform of getting your information out there. So, like veterinarians just think it's just something. Oh, I just gotta like pay somebody just to 
put that up there for me. And really marketing again is like knowing who you are constantly working on it inside your building and then constantly just putting information out that comes from you yourself. So of course you might use some other information, but you have to, it has to be organic of who we are and only we know who we are and only we know our stories and how we recommend, you know, vaccinations occur or what kind of puppy packs do we use? And the thing is that does take time and energy but it's really important time and energy to be spending that also makes you a more disciplined business. So it's that whole like visual of just like marketing is being like something you just pay somebody to put up for you versus a constant, just gradual, you know, adding to changing, updating, what, what are clients using now? What tools do they go to? How do these things work? And you obviously do need help from a company, but the real, the real integrity of what the information is should come from the practice itself. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's it. You know, you nailed it. And if, and, and I think that I, I would hope that any practice owners or managers that are watching this would then understand why the concept of, you know, some, some, but being able to hire somebody who just does it all for you, like it doesn't actually work. It's just a, it, it's a misrepresentation. You don't want to have someone who's been hired as a writer or, or as you know, a marketer that's not really a, a veterinarian or understands your business or your staff or your culture, how they shouldn't be the one doing your customer service, you know, and responding to people's reviews and like deciding what goes on your website and all of those sort of things, you know, um, they should be helping and doing a lot of the work, but working with you to make sure it's authentic and those sort of things. Um, you know, other business fundamentals, I want to, I want to, you know, this, this isn't meant to just be a talk on marketing, talking about the business fundamentals, um, you know, you mentioned payroll and that, that being something that's really important, um, and which leads me to remember some of the important, the interesting conversations that I've had uh, throughout this webinar series with various people in the industry. Um, some of it is related back to, you know, this problem of there not being enough doctors, not being enough techs and that, you know, shortage of, of you know, people in the workforce. And some of my, my favorite bits that I've, I've heard, favorite opinions I've heard so far that I thought were really interesting is that there's less of a problem than it's made out to be. And the bigger problem, more initial problem to tackle is ensuring that doctors are doing doctor level work. They're not doing like, you know, vet tech and reception level work. And vet techs are allowed to do the work that they are qualified to do and they're maximized in that way. And so is everybody else on the administrative staff and all of that. Whereas a lot of veterinary practices have doctors that just are kind of trying to do too much. They don't let go. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're not using their time as wisely and thus not able to maximize, you know, leverage stuff. What, what's your feeling on that? I mean, I know that you run things very, very efficiently. What does that look like? How do you deal with in the, in the Drake Center of, of saying like, okay, here's what doctors should be doing. Here's what vet tech should be doing. Here's, here's how we, draw those lines and make sure that we're efficient. Yeah. So it's constant. And I, I, of all things in running a small business, I would say that training is, is probably one of the most arduous tasks involved in running a small business. That's because it is constant. And if, if you, if you find that exhausts you mentally, you will, you will, you'll want to sell your business very quickly because it is a constant thing. So you have to find ways of continually updating that. I, work on my practice, like from this office at home quite all the time. I, I, at four o'clock in the morning, if I wake up early, I'm working on my practice. So I'm excited all the time of like dealing with, you know, intricacies of things changing all the time. Um, so, I mean, you just, you do have to kind of embrace that, that that's just a reality of it. And I would say as far as doctors should be diagnosing, diagnosing, prescribing and doing surgery, those are the three things doctors should be doing. Now, it doesn't mean that I don't have doctors have to draw blood in my practice on occasion or take extra, actually they never take x-rays, but I mean, doctors do have to jump in and do some tech work on occasion because things just happen that way. But for the most part, our doctors do doctor work and that's about it. Um, the charting itself and, you know, client communication that doctors need to do is very time consuming in addition to doing surgery, prescribing and, and diagnosing, you know, physical exams and things and the treatment that they have to do. So we really can't have doctors doing anything else or it will, will be hard to be profitable. Um, leaning into, I think at this time I have one, two, like five RVTs in my practice. And we always have a really, we have a great RVT um, group. Um, but we also have some really highly on the job trained technicians who are vital to our, our place. 
Um, and, you know, it's just constantly training them and them constantly training new people. And it's just part of, you know, a small business. Um, our reception team is highly trained. Also, I put a lot of focus into our reception team. So when it comes to hiring new people, like when I kept hearing people, like I saw so many people complaining about how they had too much business and they were just shutting down, not seeing new clients and not, and I just never understand that. I just, I'm here to provide service and care. And if I have more clients, then I just have to hire and train more staff. There, there are plenty of people out there that need jobs. There are plenty of awesome people out there who need jobs. Hire for your culture and some smart people who are going to fit and move quickly and then get them in there and train them. I mean, that's just, that's a constant in our profession. And if we can't be okay with that, we're going to get real tired real soon. So um, you you just have to do that. And I've never had a problem finding a doctor ever. And that's because we work hard in our culture and my website is robustly prominent of who we are authentic, authentically um, and promotes that. And so when somebody's going to move to San Diego and they're looking for a job and they look at your websites um, and also in San Diego, we just are now known as a really great place to work. So we have people come and apply to us. The last two doctors that I just had uh, applying for jobs said that they've been stalking the Drake Center and waiting until we've only advertised once. And that was during COVID because we didn't really have any other opportunities to get out at meetings or anything like that to meet people. And, uh, you know, they both said they were, had been waiting for an opening at the Drake Center. So um, you know, that's a really nice place to be. And that's because I have an amazing team who all, you know, agree with me on a strong culture. Um, but you know, we work on it. But let me ask you this, what, um, looking at some spe a specific position, that's really important in that I, I find, you know, we, we do end up uh, talking to a lot of, you know, practices about this, what should a practice manager be doing and what should they not be doing? Oh, that's a, that's a big question. So and I have not be necessarily exhaustive, but like, what are the yeah. big, what are the big categories here? Okay. So my practice manager has been with me the entire time I've owned my practices. She was uh, a receptionist when I first bought the practice. So, and she, through that, she's educated, you know, gone to school and, um, you know, for hospital administration, thought about human and been with me the whole time. So she knows our culture really well. So she hires all the staff except the doctors, but she even participates in that and helps, you know, gives her opinion on it also. So hiring and then farming off training and just helping with the operations of the hospital is really important. Obviously the logistics of, you know, there's so much involved with HR anymore and keeping you up to speed on the correct laws. Um, you know, COVID has been truly exhausting for everyone with keeping up with, okay, we're supposed to do it this way. Oh, now we're supposed to do this way. Oh, now you can't do that. Now when this person gets sick, how many days do they have to be out? And you know, how many people have to get tested and who, how do we pay them? And, you know, all these things that we've had to stay up on, that's a practice manager's role. Um, and I mean, it's been exhausting for her. She's done an amazing job with it, but we also have um, a gal that's our, we call her our, our marketing media specialist and she works almost full-time for us, but she takes off a lot of the things from our practice managers um, off her plate of like staff support, you know, birthdays, parties, and then, you know, like she interviews me all the time on, you know, topics that we need to get onto our website. Um, so she manages all those things because there's no way a manager could do that also. That's not what a manager really wants to do, but she is under the tutelage of our manager. So those are some things that a manager should not be doing, obviously. And it depends on the size of your hospital, obviously. If you're a $1 million practice, um, you're doing one thing with your manager. And if you're two, three, four, five, and six, you know, you may have different levels of management within there. But um, I don't know if that answers your question very well. <laughs> no, I think it does. It, it definitely does. Cause I, I mean, I just hear so often, you know, that um, it almost seems a practice manager's role in a lot of practices is this sort of catch all, you know, just, just, mm -hmm. just drop it in their lap and let them just figure it out. And they end up, you know, with this odd, sometimes this really odd mix of these things that don't seem like they should be doing. Like they're just not delegating out to the right people, you know? Right. So, like, and that's a constant, that's a constant play. Like we have a leadership team and it's, we don't have like a head tech or a head receptionist. We have a leadership team and it kind of moves around sometimes. Um, but we do ask different people in different departments to help our manager, you know, to take certain tasks off her plate because she can't be, you know, fixing the printer every day. Right. Um, you know, just things like that. And she does wind up doing that sometimes too, because like she, I was talking to her today and she's like, we're so swamped because we're seeing pathways patients. I shouldn't have said who, what, you know, what, what corporate groups patients we were seeing today, but we're seeing their patients today. 
because they can't manage to man fit them in. Um, so she was just going around and putting out fires today. And that does happen for any manager, obviously, but we do need her to also be in the long play, like constantly looking at the, the big picture of, you know, what the staffing needs are. I do an updated staffing needs on a weekly basis. So we look at how many shifts do we need? Have things changed? Because through COVID, our business grew 20 to 25% a month. So in order to manage that kind of an increase, you have to be constantly tr training and hiring and reassessing what needs the doctors have to make sure that they all have what they need and yet keeping that number under control. And that is a big job. So I actually have what I call my labor czar who helps me with that. We work together on that. And then we bring the manager in also in on it, but I can't have the manager just doing all of that because she would be overwhelmed. So yeah. um, there's enough other things to work on, but she's already always a part of all those conversations. So we'll jump on Zooms like frequently. Hey, let's jump on by talking about this, you know, whatever. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a big thing. Uh, putting too many things in, in so much diverse stuff, you can get somebody overwhelmed, overworked, on the path of burnout, then you're not getting their best stuff or, or just, you know, them doing stuff that's that, that they're not specialized to do and that, that could be more efficient or effective, you know, with getting a specialist to do those things. Yeah. Uh, you know, really sure. important. So we, we've talked a lot about, um, you know, some of the things that are, that go into the practice that have helped you be able to make sure your practice is running efficiently and, and it, it, therefore effectively and, and in a way that, uh, that this drives good revenues to the bottom line, that, that makes it a profitable business um, as well by, by paying attention to those things. So getting back to, you know, there's alternative exit strategies that can maybe be, you know, appealing to, to practice owners if they can learn about them and you gave some good resources on that. But ultimately, um, you know, if there's an exit that, a, that an owner wants to consider and, you know, they're going to end up selling to a group that is a, that is a corporate group. Um, one thing that we've, you know, with Genius Vets, we've had a lot of uh, uh, insight into those. And I know that you at the Drake Center have been approached by probably about all of them at this point, or at least most of them, because um, they would love to own that that delicious practice there that you uh, that you built. But there's, we've also seen that there's as many different business models in these consolidator groups as there is groups doing them. I mean, they all seem to kind of have their own little take on it. Um, one of the big differentiating factors seems to be these models where um, in one model, the original owner maintains equity, right? And actually stays in and, and enters in more of a partnership with the practice. And that seems to be a very different proposition as opposed to the 100% buyouts and what that means. What, what's, what are your feelings? What's your take on that? Well, I think without a doubt, there needs to be a different model um, that would allow, if nothing else, the associates who are remaining to have some ownership potential. So I think a lot of the current model from my understanding, and I'm not very knowledgeable of it, is that the the uh, corporate group may, may buy 80% of your practice and you're maintaining 20% of that, but that's going to roll up in three to five years. And just the hope would be that that would be even worth more at that time based on all the other practices they purchased during that time. So I'm not really sure that's truly a partnership, um, but you know, it, it can be a partnership for three to five years that could turn out to be, you know, really great for everybody. But again, I feel like there has to be some maintain, some opportunity for some of the employees who are going to remain, especially key doctors and maybe the manager too, who's a key manager to have an opportunity to have some of that ownership um, potential moving forward if the owner does decide to step out completely. So that might allow for a little different uh, culture in the transition. Um, I don't think it would ever be the same though, as those that are in the practice, owning the practice. And again, I, I can only speak for John Tate so far as being someone who to me has really laid out a really nice, thoughtful way for owners to consider selling to their associates or make it a gradual change. Um, but I'm sure there's others that are speaking about it and I just don't know that actually know. And um, so. Yeah, really brilliant. The stuff that he had to say when he joined us on the, um, mm -hmm. on the interview series last season, uh, that was great. Yeah. And I look forward to talk with him again about that. Well, Michelle, I'd like to change track just a little bit and talk about another, you know, force that is really a force to watch and to change. And we've had a lot of discussion about as it relates to the veterinary industry and that's the issue of data data, the, the, the thing that every big corporation really wants. Mm -hmm. And um, 
all of the veterinary practice owners, independent owners have, and not as many of them necessarily understand how it's being used and you know, potentially abused and where it's safe and where it's interesting and all of those sort of things. Um, I do know that you have good, strong, uh, well-educated opinions on the subject. So let's talk about data tracking, aggregation of that data and the sharing of that data. Um, starting with, with really best case scenario here, you know, let, let's identify there, there's good in data. Um, how, how does data help practice owners streamline their operations and maximize their profits? Well, I mean, I'm part of a um, veterinary management group um, and we do, you know, anonymously submit our data and we use that. And there is best practices for the top 20% of the practices. And it's nice to see what their numbers are and to always, you know, strive for those numbers and understanding the trend change even during COVID. Like I had access to um, data across the country and that's through VMG and it's been really helpful. And, and I appreciate that I have that opportunity to see that. And I'm sure many groups do the same. Probably TBC has something similar. I don't really know what they have, but um, it's, I think that's great data to, for veterinarians to have um, as things change and the numbers can move around accordingly. My biggest problem with data is that veterinarians, we're small business people. We are not knowledgeable in every particular area. And I think we've been highly taken advantage of by, some, by a lot of corporate, just, just corporations in general. I'm just gonna use that term. And my biggest problem, and I'll make this like, I'll say this to anybody, anytime, is when you use our data to then compete against us, which is happening right now, um, that to me is incredibly unethical and it's occurring everywhere in veterinary medicine. They are, you know, using our data to compete against us. And I think veterinarians, I wish that our leadership would help us with that because we have no control over that as individual practices. You can give me a 20 page, um, document with fine print. And I truly, I probably would not understand it enough to know what I just read. So I have to rely on somebody else to help me with that. Or, you know, we're not all going to hire an attorney every time we sign a contract on something. But um, I think I see so much malicious groups saying things like, we're going to take your data and it's here to help you. And I know for certain that that data is being used to compete against us. And I'm not going to use names on that, but you know who you are. Um, yeah, without, without using names and like it's, it's one thing, it, it, it almost just seems, com, you know, in some respect, common sense to see that like, yeah, well, this data is really valuable to them because it empowers them to grow their business. And if they're growing their, their share of the veterinary market, what does that mean, you know, uh, to the others? It means that they have strength in some way. But so, but beyond that, that feeling and that belief that it is, can you talk about any like, just not all of the, but, but any specifics that you, that you have seen where, you know, you know that this data has been used and it and is at the detriment of practices. Well, I would say that anyone's involved in the online pharmacies right now um, and any of these groups that say, we just want to have your, your information so we can help you grow. I, I don't want to use names. Yeah. I feel really awkward doing no that. No um, names. Just but um, they're, they're using our data to compete against us. And um, I understand that clients want online pharmacies. The problem I have with it is, is these groups, and, and I would say the big pharmaceutical companies are all happy to work with all of them easily. And yet they all rely on veterinarians to educate clients and to sell their products first. And then they're happy to take the proceeds from that afterwards. And I don't see where they contribute back to us in any form or fashion. So that's my problem with it really is that, that they need us to sell their products and then they're going to sell them online. And I don't know that there is truly a way back from that, but let's create an awareness that that is going on. And, um, and, you know, gosh, again, please large groups help us with that because we can't control that. You know, one of the things I think that's really interesting is like, so the, the first wave of scare of the data is like, well, if you guys get the data from our practice, you know, you're just going to sell to our, you know, to our clients directly. And, and early on, that was not only was it a concern, but, but there is examples of, of that that happened. Mm -hmm. um, there's since, because I've been really, you know, kind of into this conversation, there's since been certainly a lot of um, things done to try and prevent that. And then to use that as a flag to say, there's no way these, these groups are not going to go take your specific, it's not about getting your specific clients. Um, but what I'm trying to you know, what I believe and, and what, what's very clear to me as somebody who has made my career as, as a guy who really digs into data and utilizes data in a big way, um, 
is that what, what I think that veterinary practice owners need to understand is that once that data is out and it is, it, yes, it's anonymized, but it's, it's, this is what large companies um, use to identify trends and they're looking for those weak spots in maybe how the, you know, uh, the pet owner population is being currently served. And then they, they can go after those and really get a firm grip on a secure foothold in those areas that perhaps there's, there's room for them to insert themselves, but then they use it as a wedge to drive out and to grab a, a larger share of the market. And so it's, it's not a direct play of going after, it's doing it in a roundabout way that right. leads What's to What's happening that. all the time, every day, and we're ignorant if we don't think that it is. So what the problem is that it's taking a lot of the low-hanging fruit for veterinarians, and that is a lot of our bread and butter. And, um, you know, it's, it's rough enough for any small business. I'm in California. You cannot find a tougher state to be a business owner than this one. I mean, everything is stacked against you in every form and fashion, like owning a building, having employees, taxes, uh, regulations, trying to build anything. It's like just plan on spending 25 to 30% more just to live in this state. And that's because of the government that we have here. Um, and now throw on the top of it that you're going to start having corporate groups use our data to compete against us and take more from us. It's, it's really tough. So here I was telling you, keep your business. You can do it better than anybody else. And I'm telling you, like, it's getting scary and hard. And I get like that sometimes too. But then I just have to remember to, you know, I can only control what I can control and those things I can do really well. And currently, uh, I will crush any corporate group's numbers any day of the week. And so as long as I can still keep doing that, and that's just by paying attention and being a positive person and running my business the best I can, um, and, you know, taking as best care of my staff as I possibly can, then I'm still in. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You know, um, I'm wondering if in all of the thought, you know, thoughtful consideration you've given this topic, you know, number one, we, we can't pretend that all of a sudden anybody's going to go, oh yeah, you know, data could be a threat to the independent industry. We're all going to back out. We're just going to forget these computers, you know, like we're going to get away from data. Like that's not going to happen. We're going to continue accumulating more data and it's going to get more granular and it's going to get more visible. And we're going to find new ways to use it and all that sort of stuff. So data is not going to go away. It's, you can't really opt out at this point. I mean, it's just not very feasible. So given the fact that, 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 the accumulation, the generation accumulation and aggregation of data is something is a trend that's going to continue. What do you have any ideas around how to alleviate the concerns and how to actually, you know, put up some protections and do anything that will will actually, you know, not necessarily stop the stop data from from getting generated or in tracked, but that could actually protect, put in some protections for independent veterinary practice. Well, having software companies not being able to use our data is like number one. So, you know, none of the software companies are that great to begin with. We don't have good software for veterinary industry to begin with. And I'm sure it's because, you know, we can only afford so much, um, but, but they all use our data. And so that's the scariest place right there. So somebody, AVMA, AHA, and whoever, like somebody get in there and make that, make sure that stops. Um, and then otherwise, we only share our data with groups that we know we can trust. And that's a scary thing sometimes because you might think you trust a group and then they sell. And they might have said one thing, but they sold to somebody else and now they have all your data. So be mindful of that when you, you know, but again, I, I do get benefits from looking at anonymous numbers from groups of practices that are similar to mine and my demographics and that kind of thing. I do learn from that. And the trends are helpful for me to understand where my business is lying with, within the confines of those things. But um, anyone can tell you, oh, no, we don't use your data like that. And then I scan fine print and you, well, there's loopholes all over the place. And I just, I don't have the energy or the time to combat that. So it really would come down to somebody bigger than me helping me figure that one out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not, it, it, it's certainly, it's a complex issue. Um, yeah. You know, I, I really think it, it does come down to, unfortunately, as much as, you know, we're now very much as a society, we've, we've developed a culture of endlessly complex contracts that nobody reads, right? I mean, I can't remember the last time I've actually read an entire terms of use for a data platform that I'm utilizing, right? Um, 
I mean, not entirely true because I, I mean, I do, I do read some of them sometimes, but, but most of the time you're just like, oh yeah, take, accept the terms and conditions, move through, right. give me the thing I want. I think yeah. one thing is, is actually looking at those, being willing to look at those and, and be a bit familiar with them. If it, if it pertains to the data about your practice, leaving your practice for any way, uh, reason, and just seeing what the limitations are of that. Um, not being afraid to get a lawyer if it has to do with your data, because it is that it, it really can be that important um, to the viability of your practice and in your area and just independent veterinary care in general. Um, but I think if the, you know, as long as there's good limits on where that can go, I, I believe, I believe practices can really benefit from that data. You can see what you're doing well, where you can improve. I mean, I believe in running businesses by the numbers and that that leads to more profitable, better run businesses. Uh, that people understand better and they can enjoy more and they get more benefit out of. Um, so it, it's complex, but the only way that that's going to, to happen is if owners step up and say, okay, I'm a doctor, but today I'm going to be a bit of a data scientist. I'm going to get in, I'm going to understand this. I'm going to, I'm going to understand the language of the contracts and not let it get, you know, out there beyond, mm -hmm. beyond where I want it. All right. So that's complex. Let's talk about Let's, let, let's get back to, to uh, competing with corporate groups. So now they're out there, they're growing, you have an independent practice, you wanna protect. How can independent practices really compete? Now you've, you, you brought up the concept of being David and Goliath and I, I, I love applying that all the time. I would always rather be David than Goliath because uh, uh, you can be nimble, you can move quick, you can do things that they can't do, um, react in ways, you care more, you can deliver more stuff. So you know, why do, what, can you talk about a little bit, how do you, and you're doing such a good job with this at the Drake Center, you're outperforming these corporate groups around you. You know, if you have a real competitor and a corporate group consolidates it, and you know, it, it, it's always great for you because you're gonna, you know, you can outperform them. Can you give some advice? How do these independent practices compete and win against corporate groups that are entering their area? Well, I mean, you, you, you nailed it. It's just for nimble. And if we do, like, I look at KPIs, you know, key performance indicators every week. So, so that if, which ones, I, which ones, what do you look at? Um, so I look at, you know, average transaction, a number of transactions, the amount of my payroll, the amount of my income versus my amount of my income that week. And I'm just like looking at it on a weekly basis. There's about eight different indicators that I use um, just to look at, just see what's going on. I have my first like somewhat quiet day. We've been booked every single day, you know, constantly. We always leave some spaces open for urgent care. We've been booked every single day, but it's just being nimble and paying attention um, and keeping energy positive and flowing all the time in the practice is huge. You have to pay attention to your people and your practice, uh, know what's going on, pay attention to your numbers and then adjust accordingly. If your payroll is too high, you have to reduce it, but use your whole team to come up with reasons, uh, you know, the best way to do that. Um, you know, but in the end, you're going to have to decide how that's going to happen. And then this is what's going, we're going to do. And why are we going to do that? Because I want to be able to give you guys health insurance too. And I want to make sure you have time off. And I want to make sure you have these things in order to do that. We have to make sure our number is here. So, um, you know, it's just like I've always, and I train my doctors from the very beginning, we're much more interested in taking care of our staff than we are our clients' pay, our, uh, pocketbooks. So we don't worry about our clients' pocketbooks. Come to us, don't come to us, do what you want. We have a high level of care, boutique service in my practice it costs more. I pay my staff more. I treat them well. I keep them long-term. You have to pay for that. Well, we don't have any problem getting people in the door. Like we have, we fill it up all the time. And, um, and that energy, people are attracted to it. They can feel the good, positive energy in the practice. You can't ever, I've met numerous corporate groups now. I've sat down for lunch. They really don't know what is going on in a practice. And how could they? That's not what they do for a living. They're a corporate, uh, accumulator and they I can't do their job I wouldn't know the first thing about it but they're very good at that they're not good at running a veterinary hospital so if you're an independent guy and you know your practice well and you know your people and you know your clients and you just continue to pay attention to the data of what you need to do to get your numbers where you need to get them and you can look at big groups of numbers of like the trend among high performing practices is this then make that your goal. Keep it as simple as that. Take two numbers, drugs and supplies and payroll. Look at AHA's numbers of the key, the top performing practices, what those numbers are, and make it a goal to hit those numbers. You do that and you start seeing more money fall to the bottom line. You can pay yourself better. You feel better yourself. You can take care of your family and you can take care of your staff also. So I'd say keep it simple. Yeah. 
I love it. Let me let me rapid fire you a couple of bullet points here, and I want to hear you say specifically how this area allows you how you compete better than corporate groups in this area. Number okay. one, quality of care. I hear. Oh well, hands down, we're very passionate about what we do, and we own it, so we're we're very good. But, but you've talked about it, corporate groups. Um, not to name specific names, although you've, you've definitely shared names with me uh, in, in other conversations, but with that, keeping those names out of it, you have talked about a lot about your perspective into some of the other corporate groups that you've been able to get and, and how they kind of are tying, you know, tying on one arm behind the back of the DVMs and they're not really getting to practice medicine. There are no doctors that stay long-term in a corporate group. <laughs> they don't like them. I mean, I have VCA pathways in Banfield, like right around me and I, I see all their clients. So yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Uh, culture. Culture. So culture is so important. Veterinarians, if there's anything I can get you to work on, it is your culture. Like either you define your culture or your staff, little weird pockets of people are going to define it for you. Make your culture about everything you do. Like it's such a huge thing. That's how I hire people. That's how I retain people. And uh, it's how we enjoy being in our building and don't get burnt out. Marketing relationship building and client support. Oh, that's a lot of them. But I mean, marketing, um, we're super authentic of who we are. We do, you know, all our, all our marketing, all our Facebook, everything, all the information we get is, is our information. And we have great systems that make it not too arduous for our doctors or uh, to produce all this information. So we're definitely going to beat corporate groups because we do it from in-house uh, with the help of a great uh, marketing team. And uh, what were the other ones you asked me about? Um, no, I mean that well, relationship building and client support. I think all those really yeah, go. So, I mean, those are just because we're all real and my staff knows who we are and where we're always headed. So it does change and move and COVID has been a tough time, but we've, we've done amazingly well through COVID of keeping our staff well cared for and not getting burnt out because we just take care of them. And I think when they know where they're going and they know what the responsibility is to their other coworkers, uh, it works out. I haven't had any problem with people getting the vaccine. My staff are all getting vaccinated because that's what we need to do to get out of this. So, um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> One more uh, on this topic, community involvement. Community involvement. Well, I mean, corporate groups are never going to get involved in the community. So um, just all of us, you know, we have nine doctors and at least six of them are moms. So like just that little bit, sports teams, you know, groups, I'm doing a talk, a Zoom tour and talk on Thursday with a, an underprivileged group out of LA, you know, that a friend of mine asked me to do just things like that, that I think, you know, if you work for a corporate, you're not taking your time to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. That, that is really just fantastic. Yeah. All right. One more, one more really important question here. Um, it's a little change gears a little bit, but I, I would, I think that the audience could really benefit from some of your insight in this. Uh, when COVID hit, oh my gosh, last year has been a whirlwind of change in an industry that is, to put it lightly, extremely resistant to change. Um, so, you know, that was something where you, you jumped in early on, not only identified what changes needed to happen in your practice, simply just to continue doing business, mm -hmm. but then also continually, you know, to, to dig in and, and understand once those changes have been implemented, staying agile and figuring out, no, that's not as efficient as this and continuing to change them until you can finally, you know, regain efficiency. So can you talk with that about, uh, you know, for a minute, dealing with changes and how to keep up with new processes and regain efficiencies? Yeah, I think it's always focusing on what does my team need to do the job it wants to, that we want them to do? Like, that's always like the easiest thing to do. So, you know, COVID hits and obviously we're all scared to death at first and got to get through that panic stage for a first few weeks. But then we realize our phones are ringing off the hook because now we're doing things from the parking lot. You can't have your volume of phone calls double or triple and think you're still going to have staff that can manage that. So we immediately found a tool called Zingle, which was a robot uh, bot, a texting bot that would cue the people up as they came into the parking lot and tell us what cone they're at, da, da, da. It's just a tool that we used. And then we started using that tool to make appointments and do med refills too. So now that's texting instead of the phone calls. Phone calls just take more time. So um, there's just things like that, that, you know, any kind of you have a major challenge, you can use it. You can either like fuss about it or you go like, hey, this is the way it is. What's the best way we can respond? And going forward, what do we learn from this? It's going to make us stronger on the other side. So it's always looking at that. Like I really get like 
excited. Like today, I just like, I just like write things down like crazy. And I get my people on the phone and I'm like writing stuff down crazy. And like, let's try this and think of this. And, you know, and I'm not like always jumping around, but I'm always processing what we're doing, how we're doing things, how the staffing's going. Do we need more staff? Do we need to hire another doctor? Do we need more space? Do we need to remodel this? You know, that's just every day. <laughs> it's constant. It's, yeah. constant. it's never ending. Yeah. And, and it's kind of an exciting, you know, and then we get puppies in all the time and I, I love puppies. I mean, you know, I still love puppies and, and I like the humans attached to them. So I still really like doing what I do. Yeah. You, you're lucky. You get to see, keep seeing puppies every day. No. I got a puppy and two weeks later, he's a hundred pounds. He <laughs> was a big puppy. My God. <laughs> Well, Michelle, thank you so much. Um, the last thing that, that I want to ask you and talk about a little bit uh, for the people that we, we, we have with us here, um, five and a half years ago, almost six years ago now, um, you made a choice as, as a, someone with you know, an, an independent veterinary practice owner, you made a choice to um, jump in and start a business with, uh, with, a, with myself and Harley, with a couple of, you know, digital technology guys um, to, you know, to try and, and change the veterinary industry for the good, try and introduce something that, you know, to help. Would you talk for a minute just about a couple of things? Why, why did you choose to join Genius Vets? What is it from your perspective that we're really doing here? And how can independent veterinary practice owners understand um, that what we're doing is, is different and, and, and how can they believe that we're actually doing things that are truly in their best interest? Yeah. So I remember the time that you and Harley and I had lunch uh, in Encinitas and you guys said, Hey, did you want to be on our board? Did you want to like, you know, help us with these things? And I was just sitting there listening to all you guys are talking about. And I was like, Oh no, like I want to be part of this company because I'm really passionate that veterinarians do not understand marketing and I would like them to understand it. And I have two guys who are super talented and highly ethical and that's not happening in veterinary marketing today, or at least it wasn't until you guys became part of it. And it's like you said, people, veterinarians just want to go, I just want to hire someone to do my marketing. And I'm like, they can't do that. So I want to explain to veterinarians that a marketing is just part of running a disciplined, healthy veterinary practice slash small business and it's so important now to do that in order to be relevant uh, to your clients and to be, you know, relevant going forward for getting staff, maintaining staff, getting new clients and maintaining them. It's just the way the world runs right now. And if it's done well, it really adds to your culture of your hospital and your enjoyment of running your business. Um, it can be overwhelming when people first hear about all the things that I do in my practice, but baby steps, you'll get there in a year. Um, so you know, it's, it's not uh, overnight success, just getting a website and put it up there. It does require input, but you can just do it little bits at a time. You don't have to, it's like an elephant eating an elephant one bite at a time. <laughs> absolutely. Well, I can say um, to, to everyone watching, absolutely, without a doubt, one of the best decisions of my entire life was becoming a business partner with you. Um, just not only have we been able to do great things together and we're, we have so many more great things to come, but uh, gaining from your wisdom, your insight um, on so many things, not only in veterinary industry and in life and beyond, uh, just been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you so much for truly everything. Thanks, David. Well, um, and thank you for your time. Again, I know you are, you are super busy. You probably have a, uh, a to-do list still today yes. that's longer than most people started with in the morning. So thank you for your time, Michelle. I really appreciate it. Uh, any last words to anybody, anything you think that perhaps that uh, anybody watching today, you would recommend that, that they start doing right now um, that you think that they should be paying attention to or thinking about? I would say work on your culture first. And if you need any help with that, um, Genius Vets would be happy to help you. I've made some tools that are super basic and easy for any practice to participate in. But if you don't have a good culture, um, and it's not strong, you really have a hard time getting anything else accomplished. So I would say start there. And I would also recommend you hire Genius Vets because we have so many tools that are truly geared to help you. Um, even if you don't hire us, we have so many tools that we'll just share with you um, to help your practice be stronger. We really do. And in fact, um, not everybody may know this. We've done a lot of, Michelle, you and I, as we mentioned earlier, have flown around the country a lot, done a lot of speaking to various uh, uh, veterinary groups. 
And one thing Merck Pharmaceuticals did with us a, a couple of years ago was they, they really fell in love so much with the culture workshop that you were giving. They flew us around to a number of, of their premier practices around the country, had us go in and, and teach, you know, individual culture workshops. They really, they, they paid through the nose for that. Thanks, Merck. Appreciate it. Um, and then they supported us taking that culture workshop and turning it into uh, a video that is available. Um, and originally they did it, remember, so that their reps could actually go into practice and, and deliver the culture in like a, a culture workshop in like a lunch and learn staff meeting type of a setting. Well, what we have now is we have that culture workshop available. We've made it free. Any veterinary practice in the country, this is again, this is something that, that we're paid, you know, $5,000 per um, uh, event to go into single practice and, and deliver. It's now available for free. It's on our website. It's easy. Uh, it's like a, a 13 and a half minute video. There's a few downloads and PDFs. It's something you can put on TV at a staff meeting, um, have everyone watch. And I'll tell you what, we have not only from every time we ever did this, check out the chat right now. We're going to go ahead and Carly, can you put up a link live in the chat? There you go, everybody. There's a, a, a link in the chat you can click to and go to this culture workshop. But we had so much feedback from staff members saying that that was the best staff meeting they ever went to. Not only is it great information, it's presented in a fun way and there's a great little uh, exercise for everyone to do. I'm telling you, it's, it's incredible what this can do for you. So please check that out. It's free, no obligation, it's, it's free. We do tons and tons and tons of stuff for free. That's aligned with our mission to help independent veterinary practices thrive. I think we're going to do the next one on how to run a staff meeting, David, because I see so many people asking about how to do that. So, oh, well, nobody can is more qualified to teach them than you, Michelle. So yeah. that's great. Hey, let's get filming. We can set yeah. up the, uh, we set okay. up the green screen and start getting you in some AI stuff. <laughs> <laughs> let's get some CGI going on that. We'll battle it out. That's good. No. Yeah, let's make one. That'd be fun. Well, everybody, thank you so much for joining us here today. I hope that you got a lot out of the conversation. Uh, make sure to check out the podcast. We are going to be sending out um, uh, an email uh, tomorrow with a webinar replay, a link here to the replay. Uh, we have these webinars going on every week, so make sure and check out uh, uh, next week. Um, as well as if you're an independent veterinary practice, actually, if you're a veterinary practice owner or manager, did you know that you have a full page profile for your veterinary practice already live on geniusvets.com. It's true. Go to geniusvets.com slash start. There's a little video there. I'll tell you all about it. It's free to claim your profile. They're beautiful. They're nicer than most veterinarians' websites. They rank high in Google search results. It gives people more ways that they can find you. It's completely free. So take advantage of that. Go to geniusvets.com slash start. Check it out. And other than that, watch your email. We're going to send you the webinar replay and hope to see you again on the series. Thanks for your time. Have a great day. Bye.